Our scripture reading is Colossians 1, 15 through 23. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles and in the Pew Bible, it's page 833. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Thanks, Steve. So I thought that sticky note thing went pretty well last week, so I lost my sermon this week, and I have a whole bunch of sticky notes this week, 22 in all. Just kidding, sorry. All right. So we're in Colossians 1. This is, this is um, it, 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 there are a number of kind of what I would call mountaintop passages in the New Testament. Colossians 1, 15 to 23 is one of them. It is the place where the, the vista is amazing as you look at what Paul is saying in this passage. The thing that I want us to zoom in on is that Paul tells the Colossian Christians to continue in their faith, established and firm, And then he says, and to not move from the hope held out in the gospel, verse 23. The hope held out in the gospel that Paul is talking about is that Jesus Christ lived and died in order to reconcile you and I and all things to God. In other words, Jesus lived and died in order to set all creation and those who trust in him on a path that will ultimately lead to everything existing as God intended for it to exist. That is, in perfect harmony, shalom, in the new heavens and the new earth. Paul says, don't. Move from 
that hope. Now, right here, it's important for us to get a fix on the word hope. Because when you and I, in English language, when we use the word hope, we're not using it the same way it was used historically and in antiquity. So we say things like, I hope that there is leftover turkey in the refrigerator as we're going to open the door, which in my house is probably not going to be the case. Okay? So we, we use hope as something that's, that, that we, we want to be the case, but we feel pro- the probability is, is significantly lower than we would hope that it would be. Are you with me? So we, we say something like, I hope the traffic in Atlanta tomorrow isn't as bad as it usually is, knowing full well it'll be a train wreck. Right, but we hope that the probability, you know, we, like we can increase the probability if we hope that it'll happen or something along those lines. So you get the idea. In, in the ancient world, the word hope in the Greek and in the Hebrew, and then in, just in common usage, to have a hope was to to have a strong expectation that something was going to be a certain way or would come out a certain way. Uh, in, in the in the Hebrew, it refers actually to a strong rope. So it means something that is firm. So you see, when when we when we see that word hope, we think okay. So you have this nebulous kind of longing in your heart for something that's probably not the case, but you hope that it is. So put that in the passage and tell me how that comes out for you. Stand firm and don't move from this hope. So when Paul says that, you and I translate that into our brain. um, and, And the way that we understand it is Paul is telling us, look, hope against hope. Because you know it's probably not the case, but just set your heart on this. You see? And it doesn't work so well. But think about it as the ancients thought about it, the way they used this word hope. Set your heart on that thing which is firmly fixed and unmovable. Set your hope on that. Set your hope on that. And now things suddenly start to become a lot clearer. And so that's what Paul tells us right out of the gate. Set your reality, your hope on the gospel. The reality that Jesus is reconciling and has already reconciled you and all things back to God. And in the final day, the new heavens and the new earth appear. It will all be right. Paul says, set your hope on that. Now, what does that mean for us as we think about it? Well, at different times and in different ways down through the ages, cultures shape their own hope. So follow me here. Uh, There's an author named Andrew Del Bonco. Um, He's a Harvard guy, not a believer, but he wrote a book a few years ago 
And the title of it was The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope. And he divides the book up. It's, it's not a long book, but into three main sections. And he talks about America's cultural hope. So that thing in which America found its kind of cultural being, so to speak. And he says in the, in the 18th century, the 1700s, that cultural hope, right, the thing that kind of drew us together and gave us our sense of identity and, and was out there and was a fixed something that we could all rally to was God. And then he said that gradually shifted and changed so that in the 1800s and, and the 19th century, it became nation. And this occurred primarily after the Civil War. So there was a, the nation became that thing that drew us together. It was kind of the force that held us. And then that worked its way into the 20th century, ultimately shifting and changing to become self. So our national cultural hope became self. Now this is his assessment. And he says, now, right now, at the, at the start of the 21st century, we don't have a cultural hope in the United States. And you probably sense that. I think that's probably fairly accurate. There's no one thing that culturally is set out before us that holds us together. And so we're some, somewhat as a, as a country in search of that cultural hope. And he's, he identifies the fact that so much change happens so rapidly to us that it's caused us to sort of, if you will, lose our way with respect to a hope. But he goes on and he says this, and, and this is really kind of what I want to focus on it that he said. He says, the heart of any culture is hope. Now, he's using hope in that classical sense, right? The heart of any culture is that thing that they set their sight on that is unmovable. Hope is the way, he says, that we overcome the lurking suspicion that all our getting and spending amounts to fidgeting while we wait for death. We must imagine some end to life that transcends our own tiny allotment of days and hours if we are to keep at bay the dim back-of-the-mind suspicion that one may be adrift in an absurd world. Now, I know that's a mouthful. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the hope that we have that, that is set out there for us, we have to have that, and we need and crave that cultural hope. And it needs to be something that transcends all of this, okay, and draws us together because we know, we know that everything else that's happening, and this is my paraphrase of what he says, is what Ecclesiastes says. Meaningless, meaningless, it's all meaningless. And we know that. And so we need this hope. That's pretty profound from a guy that's not a believer. That's a fairly sound, I think, understanding of what the book of Ecclesiastes tells us, right? That without God, you and I will live and die as every other man, and it 
will be meaningless. And they will bury us and they will forget about us. And that will be that. But if the hope that Paul talks about is real, then that's not all there is. And that gives meaning and substance to everything you and I do in life. So in Paul's day, in, 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 uh, in Colossae, they had a strong cultural hope too. Now, if you go and you look at the theologians, you read through, there's a great deal of debate about what was Paul trying to address in this letter. That's always kind of the... If you can figure out who he's talking to, that'll help you understand why he's saying what he says. Paul was writing to a church in Colossae that had a strong cultural hope. And at that time, it was probably more likely than not Epicureanism, which had been written about by Epicurus 300 300 B.C. And here's to boil it down, and tell me if it doesn't sound somewhat familiar, Epicurus said that the greatest, the greatest delight in life, the greatest hope that, that we have in life was pleasure. And that we should accumulate. That was the chief good in life for man was to have pleasure, to dine well, to eat well, to drink well. But not too well, because if you got too much of it, if you had if you had too much pleasure in life, if you had to be careful not to overindulge because that would bring unintended suffering into life. And that's what Epicurus said. And that's partly what Paul was writing against, I believe. Sound familiar though? Isn't that sort of what the American dream? Have the best, get the best, be the best. Enjoy the best? Yes. We're swimming in those same waters, only we don't call it Epicureanism. We call it other things. But that seems to be what he is writing against, what he's pushing on, what he's challenging those in Colossae with. He pushes back on that, and he wrote this letter. Now, At the very beginning of the letter, he explores the foundation of the Christian's hope. And that hope is that Jesus is God in the flesh, creator of all things, supreme over all things, the one in whom all things were created, the one in whom all things are held together, And the one in whom all things will fully, finally, one day be put back together in. Paul calls that reconciliation. And you and I are a part of that reconciliation by faith. What does it mean to be reconciled to God? So in the old days, you reconciled your check. Anybody reconcile your checkbook? Yeah? I don't know, do we do that anymore? I think we just go to the cash machine or we look on our phone and we see what the balance is and we kind of know because we don't write checks, so every transaction's automatic. So I don't think people really, some of you probably still reconcile your checkbook. I haven't reconciled a checkbook in a long time. But you remember what you did was you took, you took 
your stuff and the bank stuff, and then you worked it out and you saw what checks were still floating around out in space somewhere, and you did all of that, and then your number needed to match their number. And when that finally happened, if it ever happened, I remember my mom looking for pennies, right, trying to figure out, you know, where those pennies are. And some of you can identify with that. But but until that happens, it's not reconciled. And so you would reconcile, you would reconcile your checkbook to the bank statement. When Paul says reconciled, he means the same thing. He means for you to be made right in your relationship with God. For, for that to line up perfectly down to the cent, to the penny. To be reconciled in your relationship to God means to have that relationship made right. For it all to add up and to be exactly what it's supposed to be. And so Paul says here that everything that Jesus has come and that he is going to reconcile all things, he's talking about creation, to God, and he's going to reconcile you and I as we are found in Christ to God. And what does that mean? That means that he is going to make all things right. That's the idea that Paul is giving to us in this reconciliation. That is, are you ready? I know it's taken a long time to get there. This is the introduction. But the final three points will go quick. That is the hope that you and I have. You see, that's the hope that the gospel brings us. The hope is that it all checks out in the end. The hope is that we're reconciled to God because of the person and work of Jesus, what he did, who he was and what he did for us. And without that hope, right, kaputs. Without that Life is what Ecclesiastes tells us it is. Meaningless. And we're just fidgeting with the spending and the giving until death finally comes. But if we have that hope, what does that mean for us? And that's where we want to be because there's some really powerful implications. Here's the first. If that hope is real, as Paul sets it out, then there will be in our lives a radical restructuring of everything. Look in verse 18. In verse 18, this is how Paul puts it. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, what? He might have supremacy. That he might have supremacy. If Jesus is supreme, that means things in life for you and I have to change. That means other things have to be terribly variable if Jesus is the supreme being. Does that make sense? Because if he's supreme, what does that mean? There can't be anything else in your life that is supreme. 
Everything else has to fall underneath him. So if he's supreme, that means every there has to be in our lives a radical restructuring that takes place because it means he's the absolute monarch. And if he is the absolute monarch, there can't be anything else in our lives that is as absolute as he is. And that's going to challenge the way we live. Jeez, this thing. That's going to challenge the way that we live life. Because if he is absolute, if he is the supreme, nothing else can be supreme. And the problem is, we tend to let other things be supreme in life. Somebody said, you can't know the absolute if you absolute, absolute, absolutize everything or anything. You can't know the supreme if anything else is supreme. If Jesus is God, one author says, he can't just come and round things out for you. He isn't your buddy. He doesn't just help you along. You can't, you can't just have him as a tag along. Because Paul tells us he's supreme over everything. He is the one in whom all things were made, and he is the one in whom all things hold together, and he is the beginning and the end, as we read elsewhere. That means everything else has to shift to accommodate his headship over all creation and over our lives. Here's the second thing. If that hope is real, it means that there has to be in our lives serious surrender. Real surrender. Now, I know some of you, when you hear that word surrender, you think, just as I am, we're not going to sing that this morning. You think, all right, now I've got to, I've got to lay it all down. Here's what it means. It, exactly the way your life is radically reordered, the hope of the gospel means that God demands of us our lives. Paul tells us in verse 19, look at it. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. What do we call that? We call that the incarnation. So Jesus comes down. He takes on the form of a man. And when he does that, right, that is that is his entering into this world. We looked at it last week, and Paul talked about it last week. He said, when Jesus comes down and he takes on the form of a man, he gives up all the glories of heaven. So, I don't want this to, please don't take this as, as irreverent, okay? But I had a, I had a, the sermon title that I had thought of last week, which a, a good friend of mine next, and probably right, rightfully so, was the Great Dumpster Dive, okay? And here's, here's the idea. The idea is that, that heaven was so great, heaven with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, so glorious. We, we, we sang of some of the pictures of that this morning. For him to leave that and to come down here to live among us. Listen, he was born in a manger. 
I know it's like really cute manger sets out there. They're really nice and attractive. None of them smell like a manger. Do you get, do you get my drift? He was born into a manger as a baby with cows and, and cattle and lambs and sheep and donkeys and all kinds of other stuff all around. That was the beginning of the God-man taking on flesh and being born as you and I were born. Does that sound... So when Paul says he gave up heaven and he took on the form of a man, just begin right there. That's what it was like comparative. It's like a dumpster dive. Was he going for something precious? Absolutely. But was he coming down into our junk? You bet. A messy, broken, battered world. There wasn't even a place for him to sleep. That's the world that he was born into. That is what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate the incarnation of Jesus. His giving up everything for us. The greatest of storms. Now let me ask, does that sound like our Christmas? Does that sound like the way we celebrate Christmas? Jesus' great surrender of the heavenly glories to come here. Is that how we go about celebrating Christmas? Giving up? Surrendering? No. Not at all. Somebody said, look, just what is Christmas all about? It's about nostalgia. It's about all these good things. It's about Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Chestnut, chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Ooh. It's about all that sort of stuff, right? We make it, we, it, it's, it's clean, it's nice, it's not about surrender, it's not about giving up, it's about being cozy and warm, it's, it's about a fireplace, it's about a mountain cabin, it's about snow drifts. Some of you moved from the north to get out of those snow drifts so they're not so, you know, peaceful and beautiful to you. But from the, from the southern vantage point, that is beauty. And we get cozied up by a fire and we take it all in. It's not the surrender of Jesus giving up heaven to come down for us. And here's what Paul says. He, that is Jesus, verse 18, is the head of the body, the church. You know what that means? That means you and I the church, participate in the incarnation of Jesus. Why? Because he went to the cross. He goes on to talk about, right? He says he is the beginning and the firstborn from among what? The dead. Because he died on a cross, exactly the brutality that you would expect from a baby born in a manger. And that is what gives rise to the radical surrender for you and I. Listen to Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. 
He just comes out of that glory, right? I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness from the law. And then he says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his what? Sufferings becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Is that, is that what you think about? Is that what we think about at this time of year? That I may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death? You know what that means? If Jesus is the head of the church, and Jesus died for the church, it means he's calling us to some sort of radical suffering in our lives. Giving up for others, sacrificing for others, giving to someone in our lives until it hurts and it's, and it's somewhat painful. Let, let me just ask, are you doing that somewhere? Are you giving that way? Because Jesus did. And Jesus calls us to follow him and to give that way. Are you giving somewhere in your life until it hurts? Here's the final point. The final point is that there should be a special celebration. Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Verse 22. But now. But now. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. I don't know what that does to you in your heart. But that causes me to come week after week and to sing. It causes me day after day to get up and live. Because I know in Christ I've been reconciled by Him to God. And there is no greater hope than to know that's the reality. And it will one day all come to fruition. And the last day. That is our great hope. Paul goes the very next verse right after that. Look at what he says. I have to get there because I don't have it in my notes, but I remember it. He says in the very next verse. Now, verse 24. Now I what? Rejoice in what was suffered for you. I fill up on my flesh. Hey, now I rejoice. Why? For what was suffered for you. What was suffered for you? Jesus died for you. Paul says, now I rejoice because he has reconciled you to God. I'm giving thanks. And if Paul's giving thanks because you were reconciled to God, you and I should be giving thanks and find great joy and great satisfaction and great delight in all that Christ has done for us.
Let's pray. Father, what a, what a joy, what a delight to know that there is a great hope out before us, a sure hope, a strong hope, a certain hope that Christ has and is reconciling all creation and us to you. What a great hope. We praise you. We thank you. Father, we know that there are many who will see the incarnation and think it a fable or a fairy tale. And yet, it has brought to us and to so many others the greatest hope. And so we praise you and we thank you and we ask, Father, as we celebrate this season, that that hope will be ours in abundance. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.